So good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Daniel Wildmann. I'm the director of the Leo Beck Institute, London. And I'm very, very happy to welcome all of you from wherever you are, the UK, Germany, Israel, the USA, to tonight's lecture. Tonight's lecture is part of the Leo Beck Institute lecture series 2021, Conceptions of Heimat in Jewish visual history and culture. Let me give you some technical advice for this online event first. To give you the best possible access to the talk, we will please, please select full screen and then we would advise you to activate the mode show active speaker video as shown in the slide you're seeing now. You can select this option by clicking on the top bar of the frame that is showing windows with participants. There you will see three options. Click on the white icon in the middle. Please note that you also have the option to enlarge the speaker window by pulling the left button on this frame down. This action will only alter the view on your screen so you can adjust the size of the speaker window at your own convenience during the talk. The Leo Beck Institute lecture series is organized jointly by the Leo Beck Institute and the German Historical Institute London. I'm therefore very happy to give way to Professor Christina von Hodenberg the director of the German Historical Institute. Christina, over to you. Thank you, Daniel. Um, it's um, a great privilege to be able to host the lecture series of the Leo Beck Institute together with the Institute. Um, the German Historical In Institute has done so for a number of years and normally we would be um, so pleased to welcome you in our building um, at Bloomsbury Square in London. Um, but, you know, Zoom also has it advantage, its advantages for a lecture series such as this, particularly being able to welcome such a big and also very globally and um, nationally, internationally dispersed audience is one of our um, advantages here. Um, nevertheless, I can't really wait to welcome you back to um, Bloomsbury Square in the future. Um, for now, um, I'm really looking forward to the topic of this year's lecture series, uh, Heimat in Jewish Visual History and Culture. And I'm also saying, of course, a warm welcome to our speaker tonight, to Sarah McDougall um, and to all of you. And now I hand back to Daniel, um, for it is the LBI's event, first and foremost. Thank you. Thank you very much, Christina. And my thanks go really out to you and the German History Institute because it's always an honor and a real, real pleasure to work with you. And let's hope that in the next year we will be back at your place, which is an extremely beautiful place. Our topic, Conceptions of Heimat in Jewish visual history and culture, is quite a political topic. And it's also a very emotional topic. Heimat is always about belonging and feelings, about inclusion and exclusion, about becoming part of it and also about losing it, but also about creating it. And today's topic 
from from heartland to homeland big question mark is a case in point i'm therefore very very happy to welcome tonight's guest speaker sarah mcdougall sarah is the director of the Ben Uri Gallery and Museum, and she's also a member of the Research Center for German Austrian Exile Studies at the University of London. Sarah's research interest and work focus on Jewish and immigrant artists in Britain in the 20th century, and she has specialized herself in artists from the so-called Hitler emigre generation refugee sculptors, and emigre art teachers. Sarah has curated numerous exhibitions on all these topics, and also she has also edited numerous exhibition catalogs on these topics. Let me just mention three of her exhibitions. First example is Refiguring the 50s, early fell Frankfurter Hermann Lory, curated in 2013. Or to give another example, Refugees, the life of the others. Sarah curated this sole exhibition in 2016. Or one last example, Alfred Cohen, an American artist in Europe. Sarah has curated, co-curated this exhibition in 2020 together with Max Saunders. On top of it, she's also working on a new big book project entitled Mark Gelter, a complete catalog of paintings, paintings and drawings. And moreover, she's also the founder and editor of the website dedicated to the work of Eva Frankfurt. But tonight, tonight Sarah will speak about from Heartland to Homeland question mark, German Jewish emigre artists in Berlin, 1933 to 1945. Sarah, over to you. Thank you, Daniel. I'm just going to share my screen. Good evening, everyone. And many thanks to Professor von Herdenberg and to Dr. Wildman for the kind introductions and for the invitation to address you this evening. I'm deeply honored to be the final speaker in this year's lecture series, exploring conceptions of Heimat in Jewish visual history and culture. I should just say before I begin, please do not adjust your settings. I am speaking from a laptop which has been hooked up to a larger screen for the ease of operating my PowerPoint, and therefore I will appear as though in profile throughout my presentation. My paper this evening examines the conception of Heimat in relation to the so-called Hitler emigre generation who fled Nazi persecution to settle in Britain between 1933 and 1945. The term Hitler emigres comes, of course, from Daniel Schneemann's celebrated publication of that title, exploring the wider cultural impact on Britain of refugees from Nazism. Members of this cohort have made and continue to make a significant contribution 
to both British visual culture and from the 1930s onwards in response to what Chairman Israel Seif termed the Nazi philosophy to Benuri's own collection, ex exhibition history and programming. From just one work by Hermann Struck in 1930, the collection today contains work by some 66 German artists, 60 from this generation and the majority added in the post-war years. In recent years, we have also examined various aspects of the Hitler emigre experience via our exhibition programme, including the 2009 survey, Forced Journeys, which had a particular focus on internment and toured to the Isle of Man, where many of the artists had been interned some 70 years before. This was followed by Refugees, the Lives of Others, which Daniel mentioned, and which focused exclusively on German refugee artists and launched a website dedicated to Eva Frankfurter. And this led to the year-long exhibition at the German Embassy, London in 2018, which marked the anniversaries of the Jewish pogrom known as Kristallnacht and the launch of the Kinder Transport, which brought some 10,000 child refugees including several future artists to Britain between December 1938 and September 1939. It was entitled Finchleystrasse in reference to the call of bus conductors on the Finchley Road who paid humorous tribute to this influx of German-speaking emigres to North London and the importance of this locale as a home to this new generation of refugees. Currently, we are also keen to highlight the Hitler emigres in the Benary Research Unit's new online database, which in line with our refocused collection, records the Jewish and immigrant contribution to British visual arts since 1900. Circling back to tonight's topic, I would like to begin with a quotation from Susan Einzig a German Jew who came to England as a teenager on the Kindertransport and made her career in her new host country post-war as, as an illustrator and an influential teacher. In an interview conducted by Dr. Marion Mallet for the AJR Refugee Voices Project, Einzig was asked towards the end of her life whether she felt anywhere as her Heimat her physical and cultural homeland. She replied, not really, no, but I feel to copy Lucian Freud, we are here because we are here because we are here. I'm here. I think minor Heimat is in my heart and my head. I have no deep sense of belonging, although I have two. And here she broke off, beginning to utter the word two countries, she instead substituted two cultures. To me, her telling remark reflects those among the Hitler emigres who experienced a profound and lasting dislocation as a result of exile, particularly around the loss of German national identity and its implicit enlightenment notions of Kultur and Bildung, which should have been their natural inheritance. And yet, this background was common to almost all the German Jewish refugees from this generation. 
the majority assimilated and acculturated felt their German identity uppermost. Painter Martin Bloch perhaps spoke for many when he remarked that he had, quotes, never seriously considered himself a Jew until the rise of Hitler, end quote, which forced him to leave his native Germany in 1934. However, a contrary view to Einzig's is offered by an unnamed interviewee in Schneemann's essay for Monica Bohm-Duchenne's Insiders Outsiders publication, accompanying the year-long 2019 festival celebrating the Nazi refugee contribution to British culture. I quote, an exile is someone who lays his harp upon the willow tree and yearns for his homeland, his heimat. I may have spent the first 15 years of my life in Germany, but I've spent the next 65 in Britain. This is my homeland. I would like to keep both these notions in mind in the paper that follows. I'm sorry, I've gone forward too quickly. Following Hitler's appointment as German Chancellor in January 1933, the introduction of anti-Semitic legislation and the foundation of the Reichskruter Kammer, to which all professional artists and designers had to belong to practice professionally, all Jews, communists, social democrats, and so-called degenerate avant-garde artists were effectively banned from working in Germany. And between 1933 and 45, as Jutta Vincent has documented, whether for religious, political, or artistic reasons, over 300 painters, sculptors, and graphic artists fled to Britain. These highly educated West Juden mostly distanced themselves from both established Anglo Jewry and the traditional, more isolated Ostjuden, who, fleeing pogroms, prejudice and economic uncertainty had settled in London's East End at the close of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century. The newcomers chose instead Leafy Hampstead in Northwest London, celebrated for its intellectual, liberal and cultural associations and also its environs, where Anthony Grenville has noted, they maintained their own distinct and discrete communal identity created their own institutions, such as the Association of Jewish Refugees, Belsize Square Synagogue, and the Wiener Library, and established themselves as an independent, readily recognizable community. Nevertheless, the problems they faced as refugees, loss of homeland, language, customs, network, and family had much in common with those faced by Benuri's founders almost 20 years earlier. Benuri had been founded in 1915 in the midst of the First World War in London's East End by Russian Jewish immigrant and decorative artist Lazar Burson to provide a platform and support for fellow Yiddish speaking Jewish immigrant artists and craftsmen working outside the cultural mainstream. It was named after Betzalel Benuri, the biblical craftsman of the tabernacle. The name was chosen to indicate kinship with both the craft of making and with the Betzalel School of Art in Jerusalem, 
founded some nine years earlier. The formation of the Benary Collection in 1919 was led in its early years by Polish-born jeweler and later self-taught sculptor, Moisha Ovid. The earliest acquisitions were diverse, but were pre predominantly by first and second generation Eastern European artists, reflecting the history of Benary's founders. And the artworks often reference different aspects of the Jewish historical and cultural diaspora, such as David Bomberg's Ghetto Theatre, set in the Pavilion Theatre in Whitechapel, where the classics were performed in Yiddish. So too, Polish master Samuel Hershenberg's Sabbath Rest, telling both the story of religious observance and that of a family on the brink of migration, which Alfred Walmark, Benary's vice president between 1923 and 56, later transposed to London in a journey very much like his own. By 1930, the collection had grown to 78 works, but only one, the aforementioned etching by Strook, which had been presented that year by President Leopold Pilachowski, was by a German. Born into a Jewish family in Berlin in 1876, Strook had studied at the City Academy of Fine Arts, but after graduating was banned from teaching there, owing to his Jewish origins. He settled in Palestine in 1922 and taught at the Betzalel School, but continued to return to Berlin every summer until the rise of the Third Reich made this impossible. Benary signaled its awareness of the dangers for German Jewry with Secretary Marcus Lipton's statement in the Jewish Chronicle in September 1933 that, quotes, Jewish artists will be lost to Jewry without Jewish support, end quote. As my colleague Rachel Dixon has pointed out in an essay on Benary's support for the Hitler emigres in this period, Lipton was reminding the Anglo-Jewish community to support its own at a time when it was becoming increasingly apparent that Benary's duty was to assist the growing number of contemporary refugees from the Third Reich. In practical terms, it took a little while for this support to filter through, for when on the 6th of May, 1934, the Benary opened its new Portman Street Gallery. Among the 63 exhibits, the catalogue showed only two by German Jewish artists, the same struck etching and a Max Liebermann painting, Nurse with Artist Grandchild, which was offered for sale. Although by then Liebermann, a leading figure in German Impressionism and one of the founders of the Berlin Secession had been forced to resign from the Prussian Academy. No mention of this was made in the catalogue. Liebermann died some nine months later, but in a chilling quirk of history, his Vanze Villa and studio was located next door to the house in which on the 20th of January, 1942, senior Nazis would gather to implement the so-called final solution to the Jewish question. Less than a month after the Benary show, a major public demonstration of cultural support for the refugee artists came about in the important exhibition mounted by German refugee art dealer, Karl Braunschweig, 
at the Parsons Gallery in London's Oxford Street, a heroic undertaking in which he brought together some 221 works by 86 contemporary Jewish artists, one third of them women, for just 10 days in June 1934. Interestingly, the wife of Benary President Israel Seif was a patron and Mrs. Solomon J. Solomon, wife of the former president, was on the organizing committee. As Cherif Summers and Sue Grayson Ford have noted in their 2019 exhibition and accompanying catalogue, Brave New Visions, Braunschweig, whose Wiesbaden art dealership had been forcibly Aryanized in late 1933, was unprecedented in his early support for persecuted artists, all of whom had been working and exhibiting in pre-Nazi Germany. The introduction summed up the problems faced by this refugee diaspora. Quotes, many are still there, others are scattered abroad, in England, France, Holland, Switzerland, Spain and Palestine. They are no longer able to display their productions in public exhibitions or public galleries in their native country and their work cannot be discussed in the press. Not only have many of them been reduced to poverty, but they have also lost touch with those who might give them support and sympathetic understanding, which is so necessary for an artist's soul." End quotes. Among this large showing, today, 16 of the featured artists are represented in the Benary collection. The majority settled in Britain, among them, Alfred Lomnitz, later known as Long, who had arrived in London in 1933 and showed a flower piece probably very similar to this one. Although the Benary collection also contains this pastoral landscape showing a utopian vision of his homeland. Another exhibitor was the Brunswick-born graphic artist Franz Hescht, who showed an alpine idyll. Hescht had published works in the prestigious Ganymede portfolios but also worked as a cabaret performer in Munich's lively art scene, music scene. His flight to England in 1939 with his pianist wife, Helena Würzburger, was supported by art patron, Lord Ivor Spencer Churchill. But Hecht's trail becomes obscure in England, and it seems likely that he later returned to Germany after the war suggesting that he did not find an equivalent heartland in England. Awareness of the worsening plight of German Jewry was further highlighted by a lecture delivered at Benuri in 1935 by the celebrated author of Berlin Alexanderplatz, Al Alfred Derblin, who had been in exile in France since 1933. Afterwards, the presence of German Jewish exhibitors gradually increased, including three German Jewish sculptors in 1935. Benno Elken arrived early in 1933, and this probably enabled him to gain portrait commissions among the Anglo-Jewish community, including one of Chief Rabbi Dr. Hertz in 1933, and another of the Anglo-Jewish scholar and founder of liberal Judaism, Dr. Claude Montefiore in 1934. 
Elkin settled halfway between the old and new Jewish communities in Cricklewood, known as Cricklevich because of the East End Jewish immigrants who had moved out there from Whitechapel. As the late art historian Brian Sewell, who knew Elkin, has noted in an unpublished paper, Elkin's experience of exile in England pushed him into becoming, quotes, essentially a Jewish sculptor of historic Jewish subjects, end quote, as evidenced by his late ornamental panel, Frey Menorah for the Knesset in Israel, a study for which was bequeathed by Brian Sewell to the Benary Collection. For Elkin, it represented the Jewish spirit against, quotes, the bitterness of homelessness and the joy of return from exile into their native land, end quotes. Frankfurt-born sculptor Fritz, later Fred Cormis, had arrived in England in 1934. Owing to his father's Austrian birth, Cormis had been drafted into the Austrian army during the First World War and spent five years in a Siberian prison camp, an experience which profoundly shaped the rest of his life and career. Also, his expressionistic handling laid particular strength upon his subject's inner life and feeling. Following his showing of this mask of Salome at Benuri in 1935, he exhibited a lost sculpture entitled The Expulsion as a non-member with a progressive open submission London group in 1936. His later emblematic series of prophets led to his Gladstone Park Monument to Prisoners of War, which still stands today. Emigre portrait sculptor Elsa Frankel, who settled in St John's Wood, also brought with her two collages by her friend, the renowned Dadaist Kurtzfitters, whom she had known in Hanover. The friends would be reunited in Britain, and she kept these collages with her for the rest of her life, an act which could perhaps be seen in this context as one, as, as one of cultural identity as well as of friendship. In 1936, Benary adopted a new principle to show at least one work by any Jewish artist who desires to exhibit, providing that such work has not been exhibited previously elsewhere. And in 1937, the exhibitors included Martin Bloch, who had been expelled from Berlin in 1934 and traveled via Denmark, where he carried out a series of landscapes including this suffocating image of boats in a harbour, a classic image of exile, en route to his new adopted homeland. A special section in the same exhibition was dedicated to 11 sculptures by Polish emigre Max Sokol, who had worked in Germany for many years until forced to leave. They were primarily on the theme of exile and refuge and included his devotion showing a devout Jew in prayer, which was later purchased by, annual by member subscription for the Benary collection, and the symbolic mother and child in storm. It was shortly after this exhibition that on the 19th of July, 1937, the notorious Entartet Kunst or Degenerate Art Exhibition, amounting to a public attack on modern art, was staged in Munich comprising more than 650 paintings, 
sculptures, prints and books by artists whom the Nazis de deemed contrary to Reich beliefs and therefore un-German. This was followed by the seizure of 16,558 works from 32 museums throughout Germany by Nazi officials in the following weeks. Among the artists so affected and now in the Benary collection were Hans Feibuch, and you see a example of his work on the left. He showed very often on Old Testament subjects and was commissioned by Bishop Bell of Chichester, who through his patronage really made uh, Feibusch into um, the most prolific muralist in the Church of England. Indeed, Feibusch actually uh, converted to Christianity late in his life and then very late in his life, he reverted to Judaism, an act perhaps um, of cultural identity with his new homeland, which he later reversed. The work you see on screen is a much later version of this subject. And this comes from a series of canvases which were commissioned for the West London Synagogue in 1973 by Rabbi Hugo Grin, who was himself a Holocaust survivor. When they could no longer be housed by the synagogue, they were purchased by Benuri and they're now on loan to St Boniface, the German church in the East End. In London, the following July, the exhibition 20th Century German Art was mounted at the new Burlington Galleries as a riposte to the Nazi show, as indicated by Austria's exiled expressionist, Oskar Kokoschka, Zin ironically titled Self-Portrait as a Degenerate Artist. The exhibition brought together over 300 exhibits from more than 90 lenders by some 62 artists including celebrated names such as Kandinsky, Beckman, Lieberman and Kirchner, alongside younger artists listed as now working in England, including the ceramicist Greta Marx and Fred Ullman. It was accompanied by a special modern art paperback with an introduction by the British art historian Herbert Reed, one of the organisers, who observed that, quote, it would not be untrue to say that to the general public in Great Britain, modern German art is totally unknown." End quotes. The British public remained largely Francophile and Raymond Mortimer in The New Statesman observed unhelpfully that, quote, people who go to see the exhibition are only too likely to say, if Hitler doesn't like these pictures, it's the best thing I've heard about Hitler. Although art historian Lucy Wassensteiner who recreated much of the exhibition in 2018, also cites the admiration of figures such as Anthony Blunt in reviews which are generally overlooked. He commended the Germans for having, quotes, a school of painting as original as that of Paris, of equal vitality and with quite independent characteristics, end quotes. And in its three week run, the exhibition attracted an astonishing 12,000 visitors, notwithstanding a London summer heatwave. Nevertheless, the continuing unfashionableness and unpopularity of German expressionism was an enduring problem for the emigres. 
In pre-war London, the emigres also established a series of cultural and social centers for German-speaking exiles, the Freie Deutsche Kulturbund, or Free German League of Culture, abbreviated to the FGLC, was founded in Hampstead, an area, as we have heard, heavily settled by emigres in December 1938. Its first meeting was convened at the house of German-Jewish self-taught painter Fred Ullman, a key figure in refugee culture. His aristocratic wife, Diana Croft, acted as the group's secretary and their home also offered refuge to fellow FGLC member John Hartfield. This post-war portrait was made in Hampstead by German emigre Milan Kosman and the German Marxist art historian and founder of the Artists International Association, Francis Klingender. Paul and Hilda Hammond, a German-Jewish artist couple who had previously settled in Paris, were founder members. On the top left, you see sculptor Paul Hammond's uh, life mask. He had invented a painless process for life masks, which had briefly brought him an international celebrity clientele in Paris. And this had included Bertolt Brecht and Leon Feuchtwanger, among other cities. Hammond would chair the fine arts section until he and Ullman were interned in June 1940. National and ethnic boundaries were fluid in these refugee organizations. Kokoschka, whose self-portrait we have seen, was also a member alongside his countryman sculptor Georg Ehrlich and Hungarian sculptor Peter Laszlo Perry. The Artist Refugee Committee also played a critical role. Founded in November 1938 to assist with rescuing members of the Prague-based Oskar Kokoschka-Bund it was also based at the Ullman's home. And after the introduction of internment, petitioned for the artist's release and provided internees with vital artist materials. The FGLC also cooperated with members of the fine arts section of the Austrian Center, an offshoot of the Free Austrian Movement, an umbrella organization serving all Austrian exiles in Britain. The Austrian Centre opened in Paddington in March 1939 with Sigmund Freud as honorary president. The founders of the fine arts section, known as the Association of Austrian Painters, Sculptors and Architects, again included Kokoschka and sculptor Siegfried Chiru and Georg Ehrlich, the latter as president. In June 1939, the Austrian Center, FJLC and Czech Institute combined to host the first group exhibition of German, Austrian, Czechoslovakian painters and sculptors hosted by London's Bertheim Gallery in July, which the Jewish Chronicle urged was not to be missed, highlighting the high standard of sculpture, particularly by Ehrlich and Siegfried Chiru. However, following Britain's declaration of war on the 3rd of September 1939, the attitude towards the so-called enemy aliens changed abruptly. A guidance pamphlet for Jewish refugees issued by the German Jewish Aid Committee strongly advised that they, quotes, refrain from speaking German in the streets and in public conveyances and in public places such as restaurants. It also contained, you might note there, other helpful hints 
including that the Englishman valued above all good manners, including saying thank you for a penny ticket for which he himself has paid. In late June 1940, after Churchill's order to collar the lot, the mass internment of around 27,000 German and Austrian refugees aged between 16 and 60 swept up many artists in its wake. They passed through transit camps such as Heighton at Liverpool, where the Austrian Hugo Dachinger completed this portrait of the former engineer Wilhelm Hollitscher, purchased by Benuri as an unknown portrait at auction and then afterwards identified by the sitter's descendants. Lom, who you might remember from earlier, later published a memoir of internment and was held in the same transit camp. Some artists were sent overseas to Commonwealth camps, but the majority were interned on the Isle of Man, many at Hutchinson, the so-called artist camp, which boasted the greatest number of professional artists, including the Dadaist Kurt Schwitters, expressionists Ludwig Meidner and Erich Kahn, who despite his fragility, having been released from a concentration camp only to be interned in England, recreated the so-called camp universities with lectures on the lawn by the internee inmates that you see here. Others included Hammond Ullman and Benary's later first paid curator post-war, Frederick Solomonsky. They even had their own art historian, German art historian, Klaus E. Hinrichsen, one of many sitters in these surprisingly conventional portraits by Schwitters sold for five pounds ago, although he also sculpted in porridge. Hinrichsen documented their two art exhibitions and wrote for the camp publications. At Onken Camp, Hutchinson's less celebrated neighbour, the flamboyant Jack Bilbo, formerly Hans Baruch, a self-styled artist, author, sculptor, art dealer, philosopher, psychologist, traveller, and modernist fighter for humanity, acted as cultural impresario and put on exhibitions with artists including Henry de Buys-Rossinger, who paid cultural uh, homage to Bilbo's influence. And these exhibitions were viewed by apparently some 1,500 internee inmates. Although most welcomed their release, Ludwig Meidner was one who did not. Arguably, he only found his new heartland while in internment, while in exile in England. His powerful charcoal portrait of a girl, seen here from 1921, typifies his powerful graphic expressionist style and demonstrates the artistic freedoms offered by the Weimar Republic. In Berlin, his early apocalyptic landscapes had anticipated the carnage of the First World War, and he had exhibited with fellow expressionists in the celebrated Gallery der Sturm. But following his inclusion in the infamous Antarctica Kunst exhibition, he fled to England in 1935 with his painter wife Elsa. Only when interned in Hutchinson camp, amid religiously tolerant intellectually stimulating company, did he find the piece to work prolifically. When the other artists collaborated on a letter for the new statesman, 
protesting that visual art cannot live behind barbed wire, Meidner refused to sign and even petitioned to stay on. He lived with Elsa afterwards in cramped, impoverished conditions and the pair grew apart personally and stylistically. His sole British exhibition was a joint show with Elsa at Benuri in 1949, which he referred to memorably as a second-class funeral. He later returned to Germany, receiving in his final years renewed acclaim. Elsa was included in Benuri's reopening exhibition in January 1944, which paid homage to uh, the devastation that had been caused by the war and now showed masterpieces from the collection with loans by artists, including Lieberman, which had been loaned by the industrialist Ger Eric Goritz and the artist's niece, the gallerist Greta Ring, and work by contemporary artists, almost a quarter of whom were now recent emigres. And these included a portrait and self-portrait by Elsa in the still underappreciated German expressionist style. In the following decades, she joined many other emigre names as a regular Benary exhibitor, but nonetheless gradually drifted into isolation and obscurity, sadly an all too common emigre artist trajectory. After internment, the FJLC and artists and Austrian Centre continued to support artists with exhibitions for the rest of the war, and the irrepressible Jack Bilbo founded the Modern Art Gallery in 1941, which functioned for the next seven years as a platform against Hitlerism in London, a vital meeting place for refugee artists, including Schwitters. After its closure, he retired to rural Surrey, where he sculpted large erotic nudes in his garden to the consternation of his neighbours. Ultimately, Bilbo seemed too large a character for England to contain, and he eventually returned to Berlin, where he fittingly opened a bar to regale his many customers with stories of his eventful life. Others who stayed on continued to rekindle their national identity at newly established continental cafes and restaurants where they gathered for cheap, nourishing meals and to recreate the atmosphere of their former European haunts. Although some Germans scorned Viennese cafe house culture as time-wasting, the majority were bound together by their shared enjoyment of familiar cuisine and language. They could spend the whole day in these havens, reading over a single cup of coffee, consuming schnitzel and strudel. And as Anna Nyberg suggests, they could eat their familiar food at last, drink coffee made in the Central European way, and most importantly, speak German freely. The Prague-born Fred Feigl, sorry, Fred Feigl, returned repeatedly to the motif of coffee houses and restaurants, recalling this coffee house culture of his Prague and Berlin years in his scenes of refugee gatherings in the North London cafes. At the rival Doris and Cosmo restaurants, both on Fitch, Finchley Road, German language cuisine and continental dress were the norm. The Doris at 169A was named after its founder and proprietor, German refugee Doris Balax, 
who had arrived in 1939, speaking no English and with only half a crown to her name. At the Doris, it was said that, quotes, rootless refugees gathered to soak up the atmosphere of the country that had betrayed them, end quotes. It continued as a meeting place for four former refugees for several decades, and Balax herself recalled, quotes, furriers from Leipzig, bankers from Dresden, journalists from Prague, and jewellers from Hamburg, with their own regular tables, the German Stammtisch, where they discussed business and the kids over schnitzels and beer. Years later, locals still recalled the distinctive smell of roasting coffee beans that started outside the Doris, with the smell of goulash and other delights drifting down into Finchley Road tube station. The Cosmo was its rival, located close to Swiss Cottage at four to six Northways Parade on the Finchley Road, and originally opened as a coffee bar in 1937, later extending to include a 70 cover restaurant. Marion Mannheimer, whose parents took over Cosmo, Cosmo from its former Hungarian owners in 1957, described it as a symbolic sanctuary. Quotes, my father left Berlin to escape the Nazis, but lost many members of his family. He would hire people he met on his travels, and the place became full of people who had come to North London to escape fascism. It was a great place for conversation, end quotes. Journalist Susie Boyt, daughter of Lucian Freud, remembered it as, quotes, principally filled with men and women from Berlin and Vienna, for whom it provided a social sanctuary, alongside the so-called Hampstead Anxious, end quotes. After the war, Finchleystrasse continued to house many of the artist emigres. Paul Hammond's art classes in St John's Wood regularly welcomed ex-internees, Kahn and Dachinger, among others. Another one-time resident was Helga Michi, born Helsa Eichinger. Her twin sister is the renowned author Ilza Eichinger, and Helga, along with her artist daughter Ruth Ricks, is the subject of a recent paper by my colleague Ruth Rachel Dixon. Ilza Eichinger is also the subject of a new Wörtenbuch edited by Birgit Oberle. The two sisters, following their parents' divorce, had settled in Vienna with their mother, but after the Anschluss were separated when Helga was sent to London in July 1913 on the Kindertransport, first living in a convent overlooking the Freud's back garden. She was separated from her sister until 1947. Helga became a visual artist in the mid-1960s and produced graphic work focusing on themes of persecution and displacement. Hampstead Heath appeared frequently as both subject and backdrop in innumerable painting by North London emigres, among them Henry Sanders' lush landscape of Hampstead Heath and Klaus Meyer's Girl in Red, our poster girl for Finchleystrasse. Meyer depicted his young daughter Rachel in their South Hill Park garden with the heath as a backdrop. Although arguably among the older generation, some perhaps became confined by the limitations of the North London sphere. Out of London, Hilda Goldschmidt engaged with the poetic landscape of the Lake District, 
declaring herself moved by the grandeur of the scenery. Having been forced to abandon her art during her difficult early years in Britain, she re-engaged after a stimulating visit to Kokoschka, and one of whose master pupils she had once been. In the Lake District, she became part of Kurt Schwitter's émigré circle and the Langdale group, which included the philosopher Olaf Stapleton and the dancer Rudolf von Laban. Yet it was not the Lake District which was to become her adopted home, but Kitzbühel in Austria, where she had previously set up a studio in the 30s and to which she would return in 1950 after the death of her mother. Beyond subject matter, German expressionism was in itself a further national and cultural inheritance, which, as Shulamit Baer has observed, served as an important force in shaping both German and Jewish identities. And through influential teacher, Martin Bloch, was passed on to the next generation. Post-war, he resumed his teaching as a guest and became a guest lecturer at Camberwell School of Art, standing out in this period as an exponent of rather unfashionable and little understood German Expressionist painting and offering his students an, an alternative, instinctive and emotional approach to color, which emphasized warm and cold juxtapositions in opposition to the staid and traditional Euston Road principles, which relied on tonal variations and strict measuring up. His daring approach found favor with a number of students who were forging their own individual responses to color. They included Gillian Ayres, who noted how Bloch swept the life room, offering aesthetic liberation. Bloch's early students in London, where he set up an art school, included the cousins Heinz Koppel and Harry Weinberger, both of whom went on to become individual painters and respected teachers themselves in Britain. Each demonstrated a direct line of descent to German Expressionism, particularly in their use of strong colour. David Fraser Jenkins has observed of Koppel, who went on to teach miners and their families in South Wales, that despite his own highly individual style, he shared with his teacher not only a palette, but a direct rooting of his art in the process of teaching. Weinberger, who had come to England with his sister on the final kinder transport in 1939, credited his own signature style and palette to having been largely developed under the tutelage of Martin Bloch, with whom he shared a love of colour. Observing, I paint with an accent just as I talk with an accent. I offered at the start of this talk two contrasting conceptions of Heimat among the Hitler emigre cohort, and I would like to close with two Benary collection artists who lives, whose lives and work ostensibly reflect these narratives. This vibrant landscape is one of a number by Frank Auerbach, now regarded with his contemporary Lucien Freud as one of Britain's leading artists. It depicts Mornington Crescent, the area in Camden Town, North London, where he has lived and worked in a studio since 1954, when it was vacated by his artist friend and contemporary Leon Kossoff, and before him, the German-Jewish artist Gustav Metzger. It is painted with the distinctive heavy impasto, which characterizes his work. In his portraits and nudes, as well as his urban landscapes, 
he frequently returns to the same subject. Here using a lively yellow and blue palette that contrasts with the earthy tones of his earlier urban scenes, he transforms the choking London traffic into a vigorous surge of pigment. A German Jewish emigre with a focus on a particular home location, his work has a particular resonance for the issues of identity and migration. As Auerbach himself has commented of his background, quotes, I wasn't British born, I didn't have a family, and I didn't have anything to anchor me to whatever was going on, end quotes. In Mornington Crescent, Summer Morning 2, he deliberately restricts his landscape motifs, concentrating on the home location and foregrounding the area around his studio with its distinctive features. His portraits equally concentrate on a known family of familiar sitters. Indeed, some like his son, Jake Auerbach, are from his own family. Others are friends who sit multiple times over many years. Another assimilated Jewish class middle, Jewish middle class Berliner, Auerbach recalled, quotes, the frantic coddling of his early childhood and did not learn until the post-war period that he was an orphan. Years would pass, Robert Hughes observed, before he would speak of his parents to anyone. And it is impossible not to view his rootedness occupying the same studio for 60 years and constantly reworking the same subject matter and family of sitters as at least in part a reaction to his own displacement. Significantly, however, Auerbach's loss could also be said to have freed him from the need to connect with and take on board the German cultural heritage that so haunted Susan Einzig, who I mentioned at the start of my talk, and my final subject tonight Eva Frankfurter. Eva Frankfurter was also born into an assimilated, educated, highly cultured Berlin family and also came to England on the eve of the Second World War, this time with her siblings. She would be reunited with her parents, who lived in an apartment in Belsize Park, rented to them by Lucien Freud's mother, Lutzi, a school friend of her late mother. But Eva spent most of the war away from her family educated first at Stokely Ruff, a school set up by German Jewish refugee teachers. And after the Blitz, she was also evacuated, a further disruption in her young life. Post-war, she trained at St. Martin's School of Art, where her contemporary was Frank Auerbach, who recalled her art as full, as full of feeling for people. And afterwards, she turned her back on the art establishment and moved away from the comfort of the North London family home. To damp basement lodging in Whitechapel, determined to live independently and off her meager earnings. This decision, however, cut her off from the informal emigre network in North London and her cultural roots. She worked evenings as a counterhand at Lyons Corner House Piccadilly and painted during the day. Many of her fellow workers were recruited from the new immigrant populations, so that this body of work has a documentary value recording the changing face of a new multicultural Britain. Quotes, West Indian, Irish, Cypriot and Pakistani immigrants, English whom the welfare state has passed by. These were some of my best friends, she wrote. 
Employing loose brushwork and dry paint in a restricted palette, sparingly applied, she focused on faces on postures, observed with empathy and dignity, but they rarely smile or engage with the viewer. Although clearly individuals, they also serve as archetypes. Uprooted, displaced and dispossessed, her refugees are part of the post-war legacy. In this, her work was instinctively more in keeping with the German Expressionist tradition, prevalent among the older generation. Her portraits, as critic Frank Whitford observed, are concerned more with the inner lives of her sitters than their physical appearance. Their inner lives have been shaped by pain, changed by dark circumstances. Whitford, who discovered her work in a posthumous exhibition, declared, quote, the work on show is so good that I wondered why I had not heard of Eva Frankfurter before. It did not surprise me to find that she was a refugee from Germany coming to Britain at the age of nine for her style of portraiture belongs so clearly to a German tradition. I leave you with Eva Frankfurter's expressionistic self-portrait and her stateless person, the latter made as a direct response to the thousands of stateless people who drifted across Europe after the war and encapsulated, as one critic wrote, the predicament of the modern refugee, the politically displaced ones, homeless and stateless, who comprise one of the most profoundly tragic phenomena of our time. Her instinctive sympathy for workers, immigrants and other people on the margins is due at least in part to her own experience as a German-Jewish exile and an outsider. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah, for your very visual lecture about on one hand and on one side, the history of the Ben-Uri Gallery and the travelings of the Ben-Uri Gallery, travelling between different Jewish cultures, Russian Jewish culture, British Jewish culture, German Jewish culture, and its artists travelling between their heartlands and their homeland. Thank you very much for this. And now I open the floor for questions. Let me first explain to you how we handle this, um, as we have a quite a big audience, almost 100. Um, if you would like to ask the speaker a question, that's the way how we do it, please write your name, but just your name in the chat box and press return so that we can find you on screen and unmute you. You see the chat function in the menu bar at the bottom of your screen, so please. We are open for your questions. Maybe um, let me ask maybe a first question. 
what I think is so interesting is this long way the Ben Uri gallery kind of traveled. You know, it started out um, as a kind of place for Russian jewelry modeled after Bezalel, which is actually, which used to be a school for craftsmen, right? So craft to be understood as art. And then at the end, we came across um, something completely different, like Kurt Schwitter or Franz Auerbach, Helga Michi, Eva Frankfurter. That's quite a travel, right? Yeah. Did this change also the audience and did, did, did this also kind of triggered conflicts? Um, I don't think it tri triggered conflicts, but I think both the participants and the audience changed and indeed probably changed in, in most um, galleries and so forth um, every few years. But as I tried to show the original um, founders reflected in their choice of work and exhibitions, either their own history or those artists they knew of and revered. Uh, Burson was indeed a decorative artist and craftsman, and he had gone from um, his hometown in uh, what is now Lithuania, he went to St. Petersburg, and there there was really a cultural renaissance around uh, so-called Jewish art, we don't actually use that term now, but certainly the founders used it, and also around um, arts and crafts, and he took all these ideas with him to Paris, where he joined other School of Paris artists, the so-called Ecole de Paris Juif, mostly Eastern European Jewish emigre artists who came together in all sorts of ways, you know, most famous exponents, of course, are people like Chagall and Soutine. And he didn't share their way of working, but shared some of their ideals. But he also had this ideal to set up a specifically uh, Jewish organization. And when he came over to England, that's what he was able to do. But Burson actually disappeared from the story very quickly. He left Benary in 1916. And Benary then carried on without him. Moshe Oved became uh, quite an influencer in those early years. He enabled a lot of the acquisitions. And I've pointed to some of the subjects mm -hmm. they reflected, but they did also support um, contemporary Jewish artists in Britain from the young generations, people like um, David Bomberg. Um, but they hadn't really looked to um, German and continental Europe um, for their artists until um, the advent of the Second World War, the um, Hitler emigres coming to Britain. And so that change um, was quite slow at first, as, as I hope I've shown, and the, those emigres would also find support in other cultural organizations, both the ones they set up, and when they could, they showed with other galleries in London and elsewhere. Um, but particularly in the decades after the Second World War, that's when they really made their impact on Benary. So by then they'd arrived, they were becoming more integrated, they would join the committee. We had a 
Um, our first curator was from that cohort. Um, people like um, Liesl and Walter Schwab, who became very important in Benary, had also come over in that period. Um, and so they were present then for the next few decades. And I think people um, responded to uh, the art then that was current, but, uh, but I don't think there was any conflict. I think that was a natural slight changing of the demographic mm -hmm. um, and so forth. And in answer to the last part of that, um, we have continued very actively to collect to fill the gaps um, in the collection. The Benuri has always been a small institution trying to punch above its weight with a very small budget, um, but we're very keen to collect artists from this period. Um, and many of the artworks that I showed have been collected in very recent years. I didn't put on all the um, mm -hmm. dates of acquisition because the labels would have been even longer. Yeah. But you're right, it is a very mixed journey. Um, you know, the old Ostjuden, Vestjuden, and um, then continuing um, if influences afterwards. I should also say that since 2002, our remit has expanded and we now um, show work by artists from all national, cultural, and ethnic um boundaries so as long as they have a relevance to the story of immigration to britain um, and a relevance to our collection then we would see them and collect them thank you we have questions by doris schmetterling doris schmetterling would also try to share a picture maybe um mara if you can make him co-host and then a question by tamara tolly and christina Hollenberg. Dori, are you now the co-host? Then you can share a screen. We can you can show us this piece of art from an emigre. It's a portrait which seems to be also. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry. I, this is Dori speaking. I'm going to try to uh, to do this. I'm on two devices. You may see me twice. One is just to hear you and see you. The other one is to do all this computing stuff. Um, I've got to find the share screen business. Uh, I don't do this very often on Zoom. Uh, where's the screen? Ah, got it. Sorry, found it. Uh, this one will do. Can you all see this picture? Yes, we yeah. can. This is a 14-year-old boy drawn by Ludwig Meidner in 1965 in Darmstadt, which is towards the end of his life. The boy is me. Oh, how fantastic. I'll show you another one, which he drew several pictures under very bad lighting conditions. I knew this picture existed as well as the others because I was present at the drawing of the other two people as well. And of course it was towards the end of his life. I didn't really fully appreciate Meitner at the time, although I knew he was an artist, obviously. Didn't know he'd been in England. I've just learned that in your, you know, in your lecture, which is very interesting. And I, I didn't think I quite looked like that, but I don't care, Magna <laughs> drew it. <laughs> it's, and, but then obviously he saw me this way in very bad light. Sorry, Eric Riedel of the Frankfurt uh, yes. Jewish, Muse Jewish Museum. I'll just mention that in case not everybody knows that. He sent it to me um, 
it took me quite a few years to find out where the pictures wound up because they were painted in his studio, uh, sorry, drawn in his studio. We had mutual friends. The interesting thing is that I didn't live in Germany at the time. Oh. We were visiting from Durban. Right. And we were staying with friends in Darm old friends in Darmstadt. And uh, there was a girl who was in Germany with the Frankels. They were called Frankel, which you probably haven't heard of, but they were leading Jews in the Jewish community from London. I became friends with the girl and I'm still friends with them, her husband and family and da-da-da. Yes, and at that time, I never thought I would come to London. But can I just um, show you one couple more from Meidner yeah. from that time? Um, what was it like to sit for Meidner? How did you find the experience? I don't know. It's an interesting question. I mean, it's 1965 and now it's yes. 100 years later. I, I, I asked remember because um, we have an account of by someone who sat for him in England, um, in which he was rather uncommunicative and she found the whole experience rather difficult. Um, and in fact, she later destroyed her portrait, unfortunately. Um, but whether that was a reaction to his having such a miserable time here in England, I don't know, perhaps he was um, more relaxed back in Germany? I, I don't know. I, I cannot remember any of it. I just remember sitting in his studio and the sun was going down. It was pretty dim. And the, I mentioned this to Eric Riedel. I've not actually been to Frankfurt Museum since then to see the picture. Uh, I've tr I tried to do it because I did visit Germany quite a lot because my family was still living there, but in Wiesbaden, so not far away. But anyway, uh, I just remember he was kind of squinting in the dark. He kept looking at me closely. Yes. And I thought this isn't going to work, but it did. Can you see this picture? I, I've never told it to anybody. So this is wonderful. Oh, do you see this? Can, can you see the present picture? Yes. Yes, you can. Yes. This is supposed to be my mother, apparently. I've never been able to check it, but I've got another picture, which is my mother. Uh, there, that is my mother oh. in 1965. I mean, she's dead now. She passed away four years ago. And uh, yes, he did three of us. He did that one of my mother. The other one, supposedly my mother. That's what Eric Riedel, I think, thought. Yes. But it looks different, as you can see. This can't be, because look at the, the, the clothes. Yes. Different Maybe clothes. the clothes were just, you know, sort of filled in. His imagination. <laughs> yes. Under Let me see if I just one more picture to show you. That's my friend. That mm -hmm. is Esther. She was called Madanus then. Esther Madanus. Uh, she's now called Esther Gilson. Uh, she's slightly older than I am, I think two years older. And her father, he had a very interesting history. Her father, whose name I can't remember, was very prominent. Uh, I mean, I can find the name, but perhaps not relevant to this particular discussion. Plus, I don't want to hog the whole evening. That uh, Esther Madanus was visiting and we became friends at that visit in 65. We met again. I mean, we left. Obviously, after a few months, we left Germany, came back, and then I came to Europe. I came to live in Europe, which I didn't expect. And then I came to live in England, and we oh, up again, and we've known each other ever since. You know? <laughs> so there you are. I think that's enough. I, if I think of the name of her father, when I find it, I'll put it in the chat. Because well, I think other people will ask questions. Thank yeah, you so much is, for sharing them. You're welcome. I think that is the best picture. Um, let me see if I can show you what I look like. I'll start the video. Because of, of bandwidth, this is what I look like. Can you see me? Yes. <laughs> yes, we can. Do. Thank you very much. I think that's okay. Thank you very much.
other kind of example, you know, for traveling arts and travel, which is kind of the key um, thing of the Benuri gallery. Um, you have now to leave screen sharing. You have to get out screen sharing. Yes. Yes, and fine. Thank you very much. Thank you. So much, Dori. Get out of screen sharing, please. Otherwise, yeah, thank you, Daniel. Can we get out thank of you for letting me share this to an audience that actually it means something to the audience because no one's heard of yeah. Ludwig Meyer, oh, really. really. That's very nice of you, Dori. Now we have thank to close you. down screen sharing. Can you do that? And then I would like to give Tamara Tolly the word for the next question. Tamara, Hi. are you still? <laughs> Can you? Okay. Now your question, please. And then Christine, tomorrow. Whoops. Uh, hello? Hello, yes. tomorrow. Oh, hi. Should I open my video or not? Hi. Please, if you <laughs> uh, thank you for a fascinating talk. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a, a few things. Um, you, you referenced, I can't remember which artist it was, um, and spoke about how uh, their style of German Expressionist art had not been favorably um, accepted when they were at art school. And then later you spoke about how the typical experience of many of these artists was, they faded into the background. I mean, I mean with the exception of the ones that we that really made it, uh, Auerbach's The Worlds and Bomberg's. I'm, I was, I'm wondering how the particular style of German Expressionist art was actually, uh, um, uh, what the reception for it was amongst other artists and art schools at the time, if they were even aware of it. I mean, I know that so much of what Ben Uri's done and so much of the appreciation that we have for it post-war, and in contemporary art worlds, uh, they are very much appreciated. But I just wonder um, how, what if anything, Britain and the British art establishment did for them at the time, if anything. And um, you, you know, you, you had that little thing on the on the oh. about what the British Jewish um, community said. You know, gave British uh, German refugees advice on uh, how not to talk too much and all that sort of thing. <laughs> But I'm just wondering what the art world itself did. Sure. Um, well, as I, I, as I sort of touched on with Herbert Reed's um, comments, you know, this, the style of German art was not widely known and it was not widely appreciated. Um, British public was very Francophile and also in the art schools, um, French art was sort of preferred and taught. The influence of Bloomsbury and Roger Fry was still very dominant in that regard, and they were very Francophile, as is known. Um, in terms of collecting and things like that, generally that happened much later. Um, I know Richard Calvo-Caressi has spoken about this before, and he was responsible for a huge amount of, um, you know, fantastic art being collected up for the National Galleries of Scotland and so on. Um, but, um, you know, that was later. I think um, at the period um, that they came over and afterwards, there were a few dealers and there were these uh, 
examples of shows which supported them. Um, and there were some London galleries who, who would show them, um, but obviously dealers will also very much show what's going to be bought by the public. And, you know, it really took a long time. I would still say even today, it's not the most probably preferred um, style by the majority. If one can um, make such a sweeping assumption, that, you know, and it is rather a, rather a sweeping statement. Um, in terms of the art schools, people like Harry Weinberger, who um, adopted that style, he was very criticised for his crude and vulgar palette when he was initially at Chelsea. So partly that was a kind of natural inheritance for him. Um, I don't, I'm sure lots of people don't find it crude and vulgar looking at it today. I find it fantastic that he saw Manchester in winter as such a, you know, vibrant, colourful um, landscape. But um, certainly he did receive criticism from that. His, his art school actually wanted to throw him out. Um, he was rescued by Kerry Richards, who championed him. And then he was also tutored after the war by Martin Bloch, as I said. But Bloch had taught Koppel pre-war and Bloch himself had had his own art school um, back in Germany and then set up this second one, which I didn't really go into, um, in pre-war London with really just a few private pupils, but sort of an amazingly brave thing mm. to do. So there were some exponents and there were some supporters, but it was a very difficult picture. And I think that appreciation in the art establishment for most of this um, generation generally came much later. There were some figures, I didn't speak too much about them tonight, but have done elsewhere, such as the refugee sculptors like Georg Ehrlich and Siegfried Chiru, who were very well received by the establishment. And um, Ehrlich was actually championed by Kenneth Clark. Um, he sculpted his sons and he signed his naturalization papers um, and so on. But these are sort of isolated examples rather than the co whole cohort. So I think it was quite a difficult picture and reception for them. And some stuck instinctively and naturally to those roots. And they sort of came good, if you like, by sticking um, with that style and continuing. Um, and others of the older generation also showed different styles such as classicism, particularly among the sculptors. But again, that was to become unfashionable. Unfortunately, by the time you got to post-war London, you had um, abstract expressionism on the rise, you had modernism, um, you know, the art world was changing. And so the older generation, um, again, this is a generalization and there are exceptions, of course, um, could find themselves as part of an older art movement. You know, they themselves were aging by then and would no longer find such a wide and appreciative audience. As you said, um, there are just a few names that we all know very well, um, although there was a very large amount um, of refugee artists in this period, but also um, art dealers, ceramicists, art historians, the whole picture was enriched um, by their participation. And they went to all sorts of places, um, you know, and their sort of wide impact is, is still being felt today. But it was a kind of slow burn, I guess, mm -hmm. at first. 
Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Then Christina has a question and then Jona Japukomholz, but Christina first. So over to you, Christina. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, uh, Sarah. I really enjoyed the talk and also um, the wonderful artworks and how you put them all into the context of immigration and Heimat. I think that was really interesting. I have a question about the collecting um, that happened at the Ben, ben Uri Gallery. So do you have an archive yourself? And I would be really interested in finding out more about when Benori started to um, also buy uh, works by women artists and who decided to buy which artworks and what were the, the criteria. Um, so that um, would be really interesting if you could say something about the history of the, sure. of the collections. So in answer to your first question, yes, we do have an archive and that's now online. It can be fully accessed via our website and by our sister website, which I mentioned the, we call it Buru and the long title is Benari Research Unit for the Study and Recording of the Jewish and Immigrant Contribution to British Visual Arts since 1900. So you can see why we call it Buru for shorthand. Um, so on there, you can access the archive. Um, we, it was um, formally um, archived by, uh, with the help of a uh, Rothschild grant back in 2015 um, as part of the uh, celebrations for our centenary when we had an exhibition at Somerset House. And the archive contains... Um, it's some 3,000 or so items, it's 10,000 pages, but those pages can be, um, you know, many pages of one catalogue, that sort of thing. When you go online, you will see an asterisk by a lot of the entries. If they have an asterisk, they've been digitised and can be downloaded. Um, and we continue to do work to share the archive. Women artists have actually been part of the collection for a long time. There are several reasons for this, partly I think because we were formed in the 20th century when although there were still considerable obstacles for women and it was difficult for them, but they could at last, you know, go freely to art school and um, after a certain time they were allowed to, uh, you know, to paint and draw from the life model as well. Um, women artists were present um, in the Benary collection from 1934. The first artist to be purchased for the Benary collection, the first woman artist, sorry, was Clara Klinghoffer. We have a wonderful portrait um, by her called The Girl in the Green Sari, which we've recently discovered is a portrait of an Indian artist called Pratima Devi, who was the daughter-in-law of the poet Rabindranath Tagore. Um, but women showed um, from 1927. So although we opened in 1915, the first exhibition was not until 1925. And that was in premises um, in Museum Street with typical chutzpah, <laughs> which didn't last too long. Um, and uh, in 1927, we showed the work of Madame Lena Pilico, who was the wife of Leopold Pilahoski, who I mentioned was one of our presidents. So as is known, it was a common opportunity for women in a sense. Um, they were often able to 
if they had um, husbands who were artists and so forth, that often enabled them. At the same time, it could also restrict their own careers. But in this instance, um, Pilico had her own um, very definite career. She joined the Seven and Five movement, which was a progressive art society, and she exhibited with them. Um, and in 1927, she had a show under the auspices of Benuri, although it was at her own studio, um, but presumably we just didn't have the gallery um, by then. So there was a very nice invitation that went out. Um, and really women were showing then from the 30s onwards and um, women showed in regular numbers. And today we're very proud that one third of our collection is by women artists, which is in contrast to the national average of around 4%. Wow. Um, so I could go on, but I'll, I'll stop there for, if that answers. Oh, I think you asked me who, who decided. So there were committees, there were always art committees. Women were on the committees from the very start and they were active in them. And after the war, um, the chair was Ethel Solomon, um, mm -hmm. who, um, herself had helped kinder transporty children during the war period. Um, she was an amazing figure. She was a very uh, strong administrator. She was also a collector of art. She uh, gave artworks to the Benary collection and um, she also helped to organize exhibitions um, and women were well represented in there. So there was no um, difficulty or barriers to women exhibiting with Benary, other than the barriers they had already faced in becoming artists as women. Thank you very much. Um, let me first go on with Jona Jarpukromholz. You had a question too, Jona, I think you're still with us, so it's over to you. Hello, I was just uh, surprised that Moshe Oved had a connection to the Benuri, and I wondered what his function was that uh, so much earlier in his life than I knew about him. Oh, fantastic. Well, he was an incredibly um, active figure. He was one of the founders. He was very active. He enabled a lot of the early acquisitions. So our first acquisition in 1919 was a tranche of works by the English pre-Raphaelite artist, Simeon Solomon. And that came about really through Moisha Ovid. Um, he also um, commissioned David Bomberg and the Ghetto Theatre was brought direct from Bomberg probably because of Moisha Ovid. Ovid had already commissioned Bomberg to make a poster and we have a copy of that in our collection for his jewellery shop, which was known as Cameo Corner. So Ovid, you may know this, had this fantastic jewellery shop uh, where Queen Mary was among his customers. He was clearly a great character who used to wear purple robes and regale his customers with great stories. We have some of the designs for the rings that he designed for the shop. Um, and then later on during the Second World War, he began to sculpt himself when he was sheltering in the basement from the bombs. Um, and he made some commemorative menorah um, for the victims of the Holocaust. And he also made a lot of figurative heads. They're very free 
um, and really interesting. Um, we're really pleased. So he, he is a very important figure in Benuri and um, really, as I say, I think his taste and his influence and his purse indeed um, helped with a lot of the uh, early collecting into um, you know what we now sort of really value in the collection today. It was really important that figures like him continued Benary after Burson's early departure. So Burson was obviously this great sort of galvanizing figure that could set up um, Benary, but for reasons not really known, he disappeared sort of a year later and eventually resurfaced in Nice. Thank you. I would like to come in also the question taking um, Christina's question a bit further, gender is very political. And listening to you, to your answer, I think it's not a coincidence that one third, which is much more um, than what we can find in normal British galleries are paintings or sculptures by women artists. But I'm not sure if this kind of political kind of decision to go for women or for men, which is political and has been political in their times too, has been discussed so openly, maybe was coming along because of certain decision makers. But there's also another debate here hidden. You know, you mentioned that at the beginning, Ben Uri was formed on the basis of Bezalel, but Bezalel was a Zionistic enterprise undertaking really Zionistic enterprise undertaken, linked to um, um, cultural Zionism in Germany. Mm. Has there ever been a debate within Bezalel about Zionism and how to relate to this, which is uh, quite a hot topic in the UK in the 2030s, given the question of the mandate? I don't know enough about Bezalel to um, answer on their behalf. But um, on Ben Uri's behalf, um, Burson was a fervent Zionist, so that was very important to him. And a number of the early um, patrons, committee members, and founders, and so forth, were also Zionists at Ben Uri. But that sort of agenda changed very quickly. Ben Uri was never um, political, it's always been apolitical and a religious, even though it was founded by um, clearly um, Jewish founders with um, Burson himself, as I say, had this belief in a specifically Jewish art. Today, mm -hmm. we really describe the art as being by artists of Jewish heritage, because as you'll know, that's another huge mm -hmm. uh, yeah. topic, which, you know, can't really be confined by by that terminology mm -hmm. um, so it was never really a question at Benuri. Benuri um, was and always has been and still is an arts organization so never sort of embraced political views um, openly although you know individual views of members were strongly Zionist um, certainly in the early years. So I'm not sure if I've entirely answered that, but please come back to me if I've left something open okay. and pick up on. 
I think that's an interesting phenomenon that you declare yourself as not political, but I'm not think that these debates kind of are left open from internal discussions. So I think something similar what had happened when it comes down to gender must probably have happened when it comes down to Zionism or as a principle to, you know, to deal with artists which are refugees. You can't not take sides in these questions, but maybe they try to deal with this in a silent way. Possibly. I mean, they, they, they didn't take sides sort of openly. They may well have done, you know, um, privately. And um, Cyril Ross, who was one of our supporters, uh, also um, had connections with Israel. And, you know, a lot of people had very strong beliefs, but um, because it was an arts organization and it was in the founding principles that it would be apolitical. And indeed, the name has changed constantly. <laughs> and the <laughs> Jewish part of it uh, went out of Benary in 1944. Uh -huh. um, it came back in at various times and it's gone in and out. Um, so um, there have been a lot of debates, you know, around a lot of things. And, uh, you know, our minutes do show lots of debates around um, various aspects. But certainly uh, in its public face, um, Benuri has not and never has sort of um, embraced any particular mm -hmm. uh, stance or ideology because it sees itself as an arts institution. So, albeit of a very proud Jewish heritage. Mm -hmm. Thank you. More questions? If not, then we'd like to bring our event to a close, Zoom event. My thanks go really out to Sarah, to his extremely fascinating lecture about traveling, the traveling of art gallery, the traveling of artists, and also the traveling of art. Dori's example is a fine example of how art is traveling too. So this was really phenomenal. Thank you a lot, Sarah. And um, this was, as you mentioned, the final, the big final lecture of this year's lecture series. We'll start a new lecture series in February 2022, hopefully really at the German Zoom Institute, not online, but really there, this beautiful building. And our topic for next year is popular culture, politics, and Jews, with lectures on dance, film, photography, and music, jazz music. So I hope I will see you next year there. Good night and thanks a lot also for your questions and sharing your ideas and art, pieces of art with us. <laughs>